Hi everybody and welcome to the Golders Podcast, where we aim to sprinkle particles of knowledge by engaging and educating. With your co-hosts, father and son duo, Keith and David Mayer. We're excited to have you on this journey with us and we know our wide variety of world-class guests will provide lots of value for our listeners. To ensure you stay up to date with everything we've got going on on the podcast, make sure you subscribe. Today, we welcome Richard Shaw onto the Golders Podcast. Richard is an ex-professional footballer who played in the Premier League and has over 600 appearances to his name. Since retiring from playing, Richard has been involved in the game professionally as a coach, including as a caretaker manager and assistant manager at several different clubs. In this interview, he talks about his career as a player and as a coach, and also goes into detail about the famous sending off from Eric Cantona back when Crystal Palace played Manchester United in the 90s. Richard, welcome and thank you for creating time to be with us today on the Golders podcast. Before we do dive into the conversation, can you share what it was like for yourself as a young boy growing up? Yeah, um, I mean, I, 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 my earliest memories were, uh, uh, it was a tough, tough upbringing, I have to say. Um, I mean, I've listened to many, many podcasts during lockdown, um, from ranging from Manchester United to non-league players, etc. And a lot of people, it's interesting that I've got the same sort of upbringing as, as the guys that did find it a bit tough and it came from a sort of school of hard knocks, shall we say. And I, I, I was no different, you know. Um, like I said, didn't have a great deal of money. Uh, moving from house to house, different houses, council houses, you know, um, as, as a young boy in London. And uh, I, moved, I moved out of London when I was six or seven. Um, out into Surrey, and myself and my brother were the only, the only, uh, the only children of race, shall we say, the only black black kids that was in the school. So that that was a difficult that was a difficult side to the upbringing, in terms of first time we really come across, shall we say, um, racial racial slurs, racial comments. Um, so so it, it was it was a difficult it was a difficult upbringing at times, but it's interesting people say about football because football's football's a leveler. And um, I think I knew I was good at football about seven or eight, six, seven or eight. And I ended up being the school teams. And because you're, you're one of the better players, you almost become one of the popular guys. So almost you start fitting in. Um, but in terms of, in, in terms of ed- education, if not, I, I love my upbringing. I wouldn't change it for the world. I wouldn't change it for the world, you know. And you had to fight for everything you had. You had to have a personality. You had to be strong not to take offence to anything that goes on. And I think from my upbringing, David, I have to say, where we are now in the modern world with, with race and everything that's gone on now, um, I, I felt like, you know, even in football, if, if, if it's happening in football, I've dealt with it from a young age. And from a young age, my outlook always was, whenever you make a racial slur against myself as a young, young, as a young soul was, I always think that says more about you than me. So my idea is I've just batted it off. You know, and, and certain things have happened and, I, and I've just cracked on with it. But would I change my childhood? No, I wouldn't. Absolutely not. You know, I, I, loved, I loved the schooling I had. Um, one parent family. Um, so we, we, we just had to try and get by. My mother did several jobs. Um, I, I helped out as, as it went on in my teenage years um, with jobs. And I tell this story um, uh, to, to other people as well. And I've told it to, to the young kids at Palace when I was there. I mean, when I was an apprentice at Palace at 16, I was, I was working, uh, I, was, I was doing a cleaning job um, from 16 to 18 um, because we, li- we literally have never had no money. So uh, before I got my start, my scholarship, 16, my day would start, I'd wake up at half past three in the morning. My day would start at four o'clock in the morning, cleaning the offices uh, in Woking, I remember a certain company. And then um, I became very good that I ended up getting two floors and uh, I was earning something like, I can't remember what it was now, £200 every couple of weeks. Well. But as an apprentice, it was only £25 a week. And so I did this for two years of my apprenticeship. Um, and every morning I was up at half three, starting at four, finishing at six, getting three trains to Mitcham to train. Um, and that was, my, that was my life for two years. And it really moulded me, shall we say, as to the person I am now, the work ethic, um, everything that goes with it. And, and we'd be playing the football combination, shall we say, back then it's reserve team. There was no academies in. And you know, I'll get back at one o'clock in the morning, have two and a half, two and a half hours sleep, straight away up, bang, just go again. Then trying to improve in football as well, you know, at a professional football club. So it was never easy, 
but one thing I will say, it, it, it certainly made me what I am today in terms of, in terms of my work ethic, in terms of, um, you know, my honesty, my loyalty, in terms of things. I, I think that all came from my, my upbringing as a child, definitely. It's a great story, Rich. And you talked about the football inside. So your, your professional playing career started at Crystal Palace where you played over 200 games. Can you take us on a, a journey of what it was like for you back then, coming through the ranks? I know you've, you've talked about your cleaning job, but from a football standpoint, what was that like? That was tough. That was tough. I mean, I, I, it, it, you, it, you can't prepare for it, you know. And I remember leaving school at 16 and I literally went straight into, straight into apprenticeship. So it's not like you leave school now and you have a gap year and you have months off and you do this, you do that. I literally, the following couple of days, went straight into Crystal Palace. So I've gone from, I've gone from being at school, being by then one of the most popular kids at school, playing football, et cetera, et cetera. Lots of friends, all 16, all my same age, 16, 17, to literally in two days going into a men's environment, you know, because there was no academies back then. You was an apprentice and you was literally cleaning boots, cleaning the stadium, um, cleaning the training ground. You know, you was in early, you was, you was home late you was actually proper, proper working. And I remember, I think I remember Dave, about two days in, I remember coming home. I remember just being in the bedroom, just crying. I remember I'm just there and thinking, wow, this is, this is real life. This is what it is. This is now, this is hopefully, I mean, I love playing football, but this is what's going to be the rest of your life. And I, you know, that transition from going from school with your mates at 16 to going into, going to a, a football club as high profile as Crystal Palace, into men's environment, it was tough. But you know what? I, I, I loved it. I absolutely loved it. And I threw myself into it. I threw myself into the work. I threw myself into um, the banter, the camaraderie, what it takes to, 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 to make groups of friends. Um, you know, I made time for everybody. I mean, we was all apprentices from different parts of, different parts of the south of England. So we had to get to know each other as well. But it's, it's probably the best thing that happens to me now. And, and I genuinely believe this, David. And I, didn't, I, genuinely believe, I think youngsters now miss out on that schooling of being at football clubs and what it entails. Because I think nowadays, and having been with some of the youngsters now, I think they leave school, they go straight into football, and they think it's a continuation of school. And it isn't. You're actually out there, you're working, for, you're working to become a professional footballer. You know, and I think they take the football from school into Crystal Palace or a another club and think this is what's going to be like great we turn up late with our friends and don't worry about it no this is the real world this is where you're judged now this could define your life so I think I think when we grew up and I'm, I'm never one to go oh during my day now it's nonsense the game has moved on I know I understand that but I do think I had a really good upbringing in terms of learning about the values of the game learning about the values of discipline you know not just in, not just on the field but also off the field so it was a tough, tough schooling, really tough schooling, not very salubrious place to, to train or to work. Um, we had a guy called Maurice Drew who's passed away, God bless him, uh, recently. And he would check us, we'd check in for jobs. You know, so if my job was cleaning the change or cleaning the kitchen. If it wasn't done right, I'd have to do it again and then I'd get the last train home. And it was like that. And he would literally go scraping around skirting boards you'd never seen in your life. And you go, no, dust, dust get it done again and you know but it gave you discipline I guess it's like being in the army I guess that's why people go in the army but it genuinely did and it just and it made you it made you a better person but also not only that but once you got onto the pitch you started to understand the values on the pitch as well you know if you do things right off the pitch I believe you do the right things on the pitch and I've always I've always said that to the kids now but yeah great times great times growing up you know people like Jim Cannon Mickey Droy Andy Gray Ian Wright um, Jeff Thomas you know, I was a young lad amongst, amongst men and, um, you know, got a bit of stick at times, but also you got quite a lot of praise as well. You know, fantastic manager, Steve Coppel. I had a youth team guy called Alan Smith, who, because I was a one-parent family, he basically became my second father. And we stay in touch now, you know, a lot. And I owe him so much, you know, and um, he guided me through that, that journey of transition from school as an apprentice and then the reserves and then first team. And he was probably very much a massive influence in that journey. I can certainly relate to that in terms of the difficulty from the transition from school to, to playing. Cause I had the same experience 
at Wigan in 2008. Um, at the time, most academies, most clubs didn't do what Wigan were doing. So Wigan were, they were in the Premier League and they were doing very well. And you've obviously got your big clubs, your Liverpool, United, all those clubs where it was an academy. The players yeah. would roll in, they'd, they'd have everything done for them. And for us, it was different. I remember we finished, I finished school and two weeks after I finished, I was in. Yeah. And yeah. it was boot, you're cleaning boots, you're doing jobs. Uh, when we would, we would finish, we'd start, we'd get in early, we'd start training before the first team. And when we got done, we weren't allowed to eat until the first team had come in and eaten. That's so right. we had to wait. We, there were times we had to wait probably an hour and a half, two hours to eat. And then as soon as we'd eaten, we're back out training again. And we, the one thing that we also had to do, we, had to, we actually had to take, you may have been the same, we had to take our kit home. Yeah. So we'd, we'd take <laughs> our kit home and clean it. Yeah. Yep. So yeah. my uh, mum my actually, she was the one doing a lot of the cleaning. But it was it was tough. It wasn't. It can obviously be painted as it's a well. You, you're doing it full time. You're playing football full time. But it, it they are difficult going that transition from school to yeah. Yeah. to full time. But it wasn't that you were just playing football. You had a lot of different responsibilities, and you're you, you touched on it that you're the popular kid in school, and you yeah. everybody knows you. And then you come in, and really you're just the first year. Yeah, you play another year. You're just another kid that's come in and everybody's trying to get after your bit and ruffle your feathers. But I think there's a lot of character building in it. And I, I, I loved it. I, like yourself, it was very tough at times, but I loved it. I really did enjoy it. And I think, I think it was a great learning experience for me. And it, your story then took me back to my yeah. days, which yeah. were only 12 years ago. So it wasn't that long. And do you know what, David? It's interesting because... We call it character building. People now will call it bullying. You know, I, I look back now and I have really fond memories of, I mean, I, I, I grew up with Gareth Southgate, Chris Powell, Chris Coleman. We was all in the same sort of year, give or, give or take one year. And we, we laugh and joke about it now, you know. We, we, I mean, I'm, we, told, we told a few stories. I was out with Chris the other day and telling a few stories. And we just laugh and go, I imagine doing that now. You just, you just couldn't because you'd be hauled in front of HR and everything like that. And, and there are, there are things, you know, I know, you know, cleaning toilets and things like that, you kind of think, right, okay. But, you know, it was how it was, how it was back then, you know. And, and, and I, again, I, I just think, you know, I listened to John Terry the other day on, um, on Monday Night Football, and he said the same thing. It's the best thing ever, being an apprentice um, with your mates and playing football. And the character building, and, and I do believe, David, I do believe what you say is right. It is character building. It is, because I look at the youngsters now, and I look at them now, and, and, and um, I'm returning to my, my young 16s and 23s at, at Palace. What's going to be your stories in 20 years' time? Oh, do you remember that Instagram post I texted? Or do you remember that time I, I tweeted something, blah, blah, blah? And I'm, like, I'm, and I'm like, it's mad. It's absolutely, it's a different world. It's an absolute different world now. And, and, I, and I look at youngsters now that, that don't really think for themselves. You know, you do, you do a session now. I'll, I'll allude to it later on because it's one of the questions, but... Sometimes you have to work sessions out. You have to think quick on your feet. If you was a young lad going over to the first team and they were doing a drill and you didn't quite get it, you'd have to look at it and grasp it and get hold of that drill very quickly. Now you've got to stop it and break it all down because it's almost like for youngsters now, it's what are you doing for me? It's not what can I do for you? It's what are you doing for me? And, and they do have different pressures. They do. I, I understand that with, with agents and parents and that goes along with it, which again is another thing that we never had when we were younger, we never really had induction evens. We were straight into it. We didn't know what was coming. I guess you were the same at Wigan, David. I didn't know what, what yeah. to expect. I've never had an induction evening. No one told me, no one told me that, you know, if, if I don't clean the kitchen properly, I won't be home till 11 o'clock at night or anything like that. Or if, if the balls weren't pumped up and I have to go in the training ground, take dogs abuse from the first team and go and get the ball. I, you, you wasn't prepared for that. So you had to think quick on your feet and you had to survive. And I, I, th I think that's great. And that it is character building. I, I loved it. We're listening to you too. Uh, I have, I'm getting some flashbacks of when I was an apprentice <laughs> pro at Bolton Wonders. Come on, blimey. And what year was that, Keith? It was, uh, it was 78 through to uh, 1980. And uh, I remember cleaning, well, I cleaned Peter Reed's boots, Sam Allardyce, Jim McDonough, the Irish goalkeeper. Oh, Jim Will. Uh, 
Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Luke, I mean, what you're referring to here, Rich, is yeah. I, I chuckled to myself when you mentioned cleaning toilets because that was a that was one, that was one of my jobs. Uh, we actually had there's a, a guy, you know, one of the second year apprentices called Mark Roberts. He was a big centre back. He was my buddy. Well, I thought he was anyway. We uh, we. We had to sort out all the ball. Forty-four balls we had to pump up. None of the electric stuff. It was hand pump. Yeah, yeah. Forty-four yeah, balls. Yeah. It, it was a. It, it's all different nowadays. Cleaning the boots, cleaning the stands, painting the uh, the away dressing rooms, painting yeah, yeah. The, the training ground facilities. It was all part of the character stuff. Great. I remember being there early. I remember having Steve Copples, Ian Evans, a guy called Gary Stepping, who was a young pro. I think it was Andy Gray. And I took great delight in making sure them boots were perfect because I didn't want them to think I was a lazy young lad or anything like that. So I, I, I took great delight in making sure, right, bang, they're done. What am I going to get for Christmas? That was my, first, my next thing. I was thinking, right, Christmas bonus coming up, so extra polish and et cetera. It, it was brilliant. It was absolutely brilliant. I, I, I would love to go back 10 days. You know, the time moves on, of course it does, but we had a laugh at every day and... You know, even now, you know, the ages we all are now and, and we talk about like it was 35 years ago. And we remember like it was yesterday. You know, they're great, great memories. Uh, I'm going to share, hopefully, Willie Morgan will never hear this story. Willie Morgan, right winger, yeah. Yeah, played for Man United. So Willie, Willie was a really uh, very moody, was Willie. If it was raining, he'd, there'd be a sickie or he'd be, he'd be an hamstring pull. He didn't like the cold weather in his latter years of playing. And he had, do you remember the old Puma King? Yeah, right, yeah. So Willie, Willie got these NASL, so he'd been playing over in America, and he came back with these Puma King uh, kangaroo skin. And a friend of mine, Musson, one of the younger, the other apprentices, a good buddy, the boots have been, Willie's boots have been wet, and what we do, we put them in a drying room. Overnight, they go like rock, but they dried. And and I'm seeing, I see Muss, and he's got an anvil, and he's got a boot over, and he's just tapping the boot just to soften the leather. I said, "What are you doing?" He said, "I'm just softening the leather." I thought, "Oh, that'd be great, great, great idea. I'll I'll soften Willie's boots." So I put put him on the anvil, and I'm I'm not looking at the boot. I'm looking, I'm talking, and as you, I'm looking at the lads, and there's a there's there's something taking place, and I, and I look down at the boot, and I put an hole in the boot. I've ripped his boot and I'm putting polish on it and putting Vaseline on it and everything, trying to yeah. trying to cover this. I got a right good paste, not paste, but I got a verbal bashing. That was all part of the learning process. Oh, now listen, can I let, let me just change the subject somewhat? You you played over two hundred games for Palace. One of the more infamous moments in a Palace year in January '95 mm. during the Eagles home game fixture against Man United. Eric Cantona attempted to get on the end of a Peter Schmeichel clearance. And I dare say was obstructed by you. No, and the Frenchman retaliated by kicking, uh, kicking out and was sent off. Now, on his, way, on his way from the pitch, Cantona, of course, launches a Kung Fu style kick against one of the Palace fans. But what do you remember of their experience? Joe Walker, if I had a pound for every time I was asked that question or... Or, or having a, it's, 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 the funny thing is with that, Keith, is I think for about the first, the first, I remember, the, I mean, it's January 25th, I know, because my, my phone goes January 25th every year, there's a journey, so oh, it's the anniversary of Eric Cantor, do you want to say, and do you know what, the first 10, 15 years, I, said, I didn't say anything about it, because I remember, I remember the incident well, obviously, but I remember all the fury that, that cropped up about it, and, and, and everything that went with it, and I'm looking at thinking, right, so I've, I've done absolutely nothing wrong. I've done absolutely nothing wrong. I, I never forget a day. Man United come to town. Whenever you get the fixtures out, you're looking at Manchester United, you're thinking, can't wait to play them because they're, they're the yardstick, they're benchmark. And they just bought Andy Cole for seven million. And um, the debut, his debut was against us. So you remember that, that team? I've heard so many reports. I've heard uh, one guy, one guy or several people have said, um, you man-marked Eric that night. You, you was man-marking Eric that night. Well, I wasn't. I, I wasn't man-marking Eric. I was playing right side, centre-half, Chris Coleman, left side. Um, my, my answer to that would be, why would you man-mark Eric? You've got Andy Cole, Ryan Giggs, Konchelskis, Keane, Ince. You've got players. You can't just man-mark one. 
they've got they've got eleven world class players. So that to me was straight away the, uh, one accusation. Man marking, wind him up. It wasn't that case. That year, Eric Eric had um, um, altercations with with John Polston. I think it was at, um, at Norwich. John Moncur at Swindon, well, I think he stamped on them as well. I didn't stamp on me just, just to flick out a kick. But it, it, honestly, it was absolutely nothing. The ball gone over the top. We both turned away um, to chase it. And he just, it was just an innocuous trip. Eric just, just a little trip and fell over, bang, might be in the second yellow card. And obviously, the rest of history goes into, goes into the crowd. Some, some, some guy comes down. I still don't know what the, the slur was, whether it was a racial slur or, 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 or a French slur, whatever it is. I'm still not unsure. And also the rest is history, you know, Kung Fu. And, and, and after that, it, it, it's amazing because I even read a book. I remember being a sat man of pause on holiday. I read a book. I won't say who the author is. And he basically accused me of kicking out everyone. Now, I, I've seen that game back several times, to be sure, to myself. And he basically, I, I phoned up a lawyer. I'll never forget phoning up a lawyer. And I said, look, um, this book's come out. And it's basically accused me of doing that. And I see it didn't happen. I've seen the game. I've seen the game several times. He said, well, it's defamation of character because the way he was trying to portray me. So we was, I, was gonna, I was actually going to take a legal vote down there because I had just enough, so much rubbish wrote about it that I was going to do that. I didn't do it in the end because I just thought, there's no, yeah, let's just leave it. It's an instance that's happened. But do you know what, Keith? For me, I just think Eric got frustrated that night. You know, they had to win the game. The game was one all. I think it finished one all that, that night. Um, it's just just a frustration. The one thing I would say, he's one of the best players and best people I've ever played against. And I will never have a bad word said against him. He did what he did. But do you know what? I quite like that bit of devilment. I don't mind people that are different than the norm. I like that. I think it's a bit fiery. Um, it, I thought he was a brilliant player. He was the catalyst of that football club for what they did in the 90s. Terrific, terrific footballer. Just even Mark Hughes up front with just an unbelievable partnership. And, and uh, you know... Uh, for me, it was just one incident, and if it never happened, wouldn't life be boring? Um, it, obviously, look, it, it's, it's, it's not a common theme, shall we say, in football, when you see that. Yeah. But you it get is a flash punch, don't you? You know, we refer back to this, that time, and I think it's probably remembered because of what he did yeah. afterwards, after the sending off, and yeah. the incidents, are take, they were taking place regularly back then. Oh, you, right. you get a little bit yeah. of niggle, and you played 699 there. Come on. Was there another game there, or could you go well, another one out? I was coming towards my end of my career. I was, I was, I was at Millwall, and um, I remember speaking to you before, Keith, about this, actually. I'm still unsure of the actual number. I mean, someone said to me, I think we played Bournemouth away, and I came on a sub, and I think the press guys at Millwall said, oh, that's, your, that's your second hundredth game you've been involved in. I went, oh, right. So I've never really been one for stats I've never been one for I've got nothing in my house that suggests I'm a footballer no shirts no nothing you know I just I just I, I am who I am so it's never really bothered me but I think you're right it's around about that mark but I, I will take 699 if, if it means I miss one extra I miss one extra but you know I'm, I'm I played to just sort to short of us 40 so you know I was very proud and you know how I looked after myself and in terms of yoga, in terms of diet, in terms of, I mean, that, that all comes from Gordon Strachan when I played under Gordon, you know, just what great influence he was on my fitness uh, growing up. But, but yeah, it, the longevity I'm very, very proud of, very proud of. What was it specifically you loved most about playing? Um, do, do you know what? I, I, loved, I loved the camaraderie with, with, with your teammates. And I think when people leave football, I think it's one thing they struggle with, you know, and people say about when you leave football, have something to go straight into football. Now, I was lucky when I left Millwall, I went straight into a coaching job at Millwall. But people say when you leave football, and I've seen people like, you know, like Gaza coming to terms with not playing football anymore because it's something that he loved. Now, I, I love playing football, but I can, I can separate my football from my, from my personal life and, and social life. But, but I think with football, because you're with teammates, I mean, there's no feeling, David would tell you, and you, you, you've been in football, Keith, when you win a game and you're walking to change them afterwards, you can't beat that feeling. You just can't. Everyone's jumping over you. You just you, you, you've played. You've played. You've played in front of 50,000, whatever it is. You know. You sent them everyone home happy. It's just delirium. It, it really is. It, it's it's a lovely, lovely, lovely feeling. And and I love that about football. Driving home, thinking I can't wait till Monday. I can't wait till Sunday to pick the papers up back in the day or something. And I can't wait to go in Monday because everyone's on a high, you know. And don't get me wrong, you get your down. Of course, you get your down days when you lose. Of course, you do. But I just, I like, I like the thought of being a team with people and 
that to me was really, really important, which is why I stayed close to lots and lots of ex-teammates and we're all, we're all, we're all good friends now. But, uh, you know, I even, I even enjoyed the walk. I even enjoyed the driving into the stadium and having them butterflies in the stomach. I actually enjoyed that for, because I was, you know, the pressure of playing, you know, you go to the ground and, you know, women's playing the premiership and the match day cameras are there and you know you're going to be the opening game. You're playing Liverpool, me and I, and you're thinking, if I don't play well today, all of a sudden the nerves just come over you again. And, you know, but once the whistle goes, it's almost like you're doing something that you know you're good at. So the nerves all go and you just, you just get into the moment. But that, but the thought after the game you've done well is great. But I, I did like, I did like the pressure kind of thing because it feels like you're getting up, you're putting pressure on yourself. And I think life should be about that. It should be about obstacles at times and, you know, getting out of your comfort zone at times. And, um, you know, I, cer- I certainly felt that before games. When you, uh, the obstacles, the pressure, the excitement. Yeah. I even guess it's that, it's the unknown, uncertainty. Exactly. Yeah. That part of it. What, what do you feel are the characteristics now of elite professional players? What do they possess? I think when I look at when I look at the elite the elite guys, um, it's interesting because I had this conversation with somebody the other day, and we was I was um, I was coaching a team the other day, and they couldn't quite grasp the drill or couldn't quite grasp. Someone's playing a ball around the corner, and no one was there, and and you look at it and you think like these sometimes every level you play at different levels. And I think the guys that are now the elite players, they're so intelligent, and and I've been to watch. Premier League training. I've been to Premier League training grounds to watch first teams train. They don't do a great deal. It's, it's amazing. You know, sessions are short. Might be an 8v8, 7v7, bit of pattern of play. Because they're so intelligent, the players, that they can almost, they almost know the game. You know, and, I, and I, the reason why you play different levels, everybody's good at football. And everyone could be technically, a League One player can be good as a, good as a, a, a Premier League player. But it's that mindset that the Premier League player has for me that differentiates people from top, top players to good players. And I look at Ronaldo and, you know, you read, you look on stuff on YouTube and that, and, and you see how he prepares. He goes home, there's a gym, a swim pool. He's, you know, you hear the stories about Man United after, after the session, he does, he does two laps of a pitch and takes an hour to warm down, then eats at a certain time. And, it's, and it's, it's that mental side of it where I think the real elite players really come to the fore. They can cope with playing in front of 80,000. They can cope with finals. They can cope with adversity because they just go again. I mean, you, I mean, you, look, at, you look at the adversity, some of the top players have had their private lives being exposed and that. They come a Saturday, three o'clock, bang, they're in, they're in the moment. They can play. And I just think their mindset is so far superior than players that in League One, League Two. That's not being disrespectful, but I'm just talking about, you're talking about elite players in the Premier League and world elite players. They can be in that moment and they can prepare and they can, they can focus. They can, yeah, all, the, all the rubbish, it just goes away. They're just preparing for that moment. And I think that's the difference between elite players. So in your playing career, you played with and against some outstanding players. Mm-hmm. But who was the best player you ever played against? And what was, about, what was it about him that made him so special? Do you know what? I, I, I've, really given, I've really given this some thought as well. And um, it's interesting because my, my, my stock answer has always been everybody gave me different problems, you know. So you could play against when he just came up with Thierry Henry, who's six foot three, and he's, he's as quick as unbelievable. You think, right, there's a problem itself. Dennis Bergkamp gives you another problem because he drops into the hole. Every single, every single player, Mark Hughes and Cantona, were just so strong they could hold the ball up really well. Uh, Michael Owen, I remember coming off a football pitch against Liverpool. We'd lost 2-0 when we had Owen and Fowler up front. And I come off there thinking, I've done well today. I've done really well and I've really enjoyed that. And we've lost, we've lost 2-0. One of the, Owen and Fowler have got, both got a goal. And I think, where did that happen? They've done nothing in the game and yet they just got that, like I said, intelligence to be at the right place at the right time. But every player has always got something different you play against. But it's funny because... Again, it's just a chat I had the other day and, and, and I grew up with him at, at Southampton only for, only for a few months. But no one seems to mention this guy. Everyone seems to mention, you know, this, the Bergkamps, the Omri's, the foreign guys. But people sometimes, in a conversation like this, dismiss Alan Shearer, who scored 260 goals. I'm, I mean, and he had two years out injured. It's, it's an incredible achievement. And he also played, 
I wouldn't even say he played at the top team like Manchester United were the top team back then. He could have gone there. He was at Newcastle, Blackburn, Southampton. Now, they're fantastic clubs, but they're not, they're not European cup winning clubs. And to do what he achieved, and he caused me big problems because Alan was about 5'10", 5'11", brilliant in the air. So he, all of the players I talked about, he, he had all of that. He could drop into a hole if he wanted to. He could, he could hold the ball up. He was powerful. He was, he was fantastic in the air. He had a great shot. He had, a, he had pace before his injuries, a little bit of pace. And, but he also had them ideas where to take you and then dart into near post. He was a, he was a brilliant player. And, you know, I think sometimes in England, you know, we, we, we're quite negative sometimes in England. You know, we don't talk about our own players. We don't revere them as much as elsewhere. As a, for instance, Glenn Hoddle. Glenn Hoddle to me should have had 150 caps. If he'd have been Italian or French, he would have had that. But in England, 57 caps and don't think nothing of him. But you look at Glenn Hoddle's clips, oh my God, what a talent. But but Shearer, I think, I think Shearer is probably one of the best, the best centre-forwards I've ever, I've ever played against. And uh, um, I think he's... What I liked about him, he had that drive. And I was with him at Southampton as a schoolboy, just only for a few months. And we played against him in the youth team at Southampton and my career sort of gone alongside his, shall we say, in playing against him. But he just had that drive and desire. So I wouldn't say he was the best trainer in the world. And I think a few people have said that, but come three o'clock, he, he, he was just so driven, so selfish. I mean, in a nine-way driven, uh, born a real winner, an absolute winner. So... Yeah, he, if I had to pick one, I'd probably say Shearer, maybe. Quite a list of players there that you mentioned, the foreign ones in Bergkamp and Thierry Henry. Uh, to mention Alan Shearer and all of that, you know, yeah. there's, a, there's a balanced diet for yourself to be able to be able to adapt and adjust to play against those type of yeah. players, Rich. Yeah. But yeah. after you finish playing, you retire, you get into full-time coaching, what was the transition like from playing just on 700 games and then you went from yeah. playing to coaching? If I, could do it, if I could do it again, Keith, if that's one thing I've always said. When I went from playing to coaching, I literally left Millwall. I finished playing at Millwall. Um, end of May, you go away on holiday, but you come back and you, you're part of the first team coaching setup. And um, anyone that's been the sort of third coach, shall we say, you know, you, you might do the warm-up, you might do a bit of a shooting joint, you might do this and that. And I never really learned about coaching. I learned a lot watching Kenny Jackett, because he was a manager at the time. And Kenny was really good, really good coach. And I learned a lot watching him. But I wish, and, and it didn't happen It didn't happen that way, because sometimes it just happens you fall into it. And this is where I think football's wrong. Um, I wish I'd gone into academy and spent a good few years there learning the ropes, making all my mistakes, pit sizes, numbers, uh, the duration of the session, what we're going to get out of that session for that individual, um, what are the goals, what, what, what that individual look like in three years, what's his plan, you know, and I wish I'd done it that way, because when I look at it, I look at um, Benitez, who's done 10 years at Real Madrid's youth team, Capello done 10 years at Milan's youth team, and they learn the job, and I think football's one of them only industries where you can literally go from playing straight to coaching, not really knowing it. But because you've been a player or because you've played the game, everyone seems to think he must know what he's talking about. But it's a totally different job. How are you going to talk to that player? You look at that player now, you think, what brings the best out of you? How can, how can I do that? As a player, you don't because you're selfish. You just think about yourself. But as a coach now, you're thinking about everyone, not just the players that are playing, but also the players that are not playing, just as important. Learning all of that, it's really, really tough. And if I could do it again now, when I left Millwall, as a for instance, I remember being at, at Crystal Palace doing the under-16s. So I went to Palace and the under-16s. I worked in development. And I learned more doing that um, the first year than I did with the Millwall first team, shall we say. And I was at Millwall for four years coaching. But when I went to Palace, I, I learned off of two coaches, two young coaches. Dave Reddington, and his name was Jack Meeshaw. Dave Reddington's now our first team coach at Palace. And Jack Meeshaw's subsequently gone to Chelsea doing the 16s. And them two, I thought, oh my God, that is coaching. And I learned so much. So we all learned off each other. They learned off of me in terms of what it was like to be a player because they never really had a career. But I learned off of them in terms of what it was like to really coach, not just put a session on, blow the whistle, away you go, but to break sessions down. How am I going to do that? And I, I would recommend, and we all have the courses now, but I would recommend anyone now leaving the game, 
to go into academies and start coaching even when you're playing and learn how to coach, how to engage with people, what's their mindsets. You could get kids that come in, you don't know what's going on at home. I've, I've seen kids come in at Palace and the kids have been late and the, one of the coaches just gone, right, fine, bang. But it's not good enough. You've got to understand why is he late? What's the situation? I find out the kids, his dad's just come out of prison and you find out all the difficulties with the things of his siblings. So rather than, I think it's sometimes with coaching, it's easy to just go, oh, fine, you're late, right, you're not playing Saturday, blah, blah. Well, why are you late? Find out about people. For me, coaching, and I, and I stand by this, and I've always done it, I've always taken time to find out about the person before the player. So I know what makes him tick. So I think, right, okay, we can have that relationship. We've built that trust. Then I know I'm going to get more out of you on a Saturday. You can't go so far, obviously. Once they start, it happens three, four, five, six, seven times. But I just used to treat them, treat people, treat people right. I mean, I used to have an app on my phone key when players were late. I say, what train do you get? So anyway, so I go on the app. Okay, well, that train wasn't delayed because I just said, no, it's coming, it's coming. And then they found out that I took, I did take notice of them. They, they, they couldn't pull one out of my ass. And then we, we became friends. Then I gained their trust. Then I gained their respect and vice versa. So I, I really enjoyed that side of coaching. I actually really enjoy it. And to get to know the individual and the fact that now I keep in touch with every young lad that's left or something like that, I always take an interest in, in where they are, sit have a cup of coffee with them. And I, I think even when they're playing, they're playing non-league level on that, they, for me, that's success. It's success. If you play football with success, it's not about just playing the Premier League. It's about playing football because there's millions of people who want to play football. So I always make every single person I've coached, every single, and I talk about youngsters, every single person I've coached, whether it's been Aaron Bissaka going to Manchester United or Michael Phillips, who's now at Wheelstone and got promoted to League Two or, or the chat or, or non-league uh, conference, and everybody's been successful at that. And I, I've really enjoyed that part of it, but a long-winded answer. But, but the answer to your question is, the transition was difficult because the first team players, because I, because I was a friend of theirs before that, then I was a coach. They took a bit liberties with me, to be honest. And I ended up falling out with a few, a few of the first game we had. And they forget it was at Aldershot. It was two more down. The lads just thought I wouldn't say anything because I was their friend. Well, they were severely wrong. Half time, the paint came off the walls, everything. I remember Scott Fitzgerald, he came around and said, Mike, Rich, you can't. I went, Scott, they're going to get it, mate. They're going to get it. They're taking a pee. We walked up the stairs at Aldershot and he said, no, no, no. I said, Scott, I'm fine. I'll just go in there and say a few words. I went in there, I literally ripped. And you're talking about senior players, Marcus Bignett, David Brammer, um, Alan Dunn, Paul and, and they were senior players and I straight away got their respect because of that. And they understood that they couldn't take liberties. It's, it's, it's not easy, I have to say, going from that changing room to all of a sudden become a bit of an outcast and think, oh, we can't talk about, about him because Rich is about or something like that because my allegiance now is to the manager. So that side of it is difficult. That's why I recommend anybody now, you know, I'm on the advanced youth module courses and things like that, is have a couple of years in the academy. And just on that, I do believe that's where I think we get it wrong in the UK. In Holland and Germany and places like that, them coaches are, are revered. Them coaches are paid well because they're teaching the fundamentals of life and technical skills to the kids. So... When it comes to 16, 18, them kids have got them skills in place. They don't worry about winning. You look at the IX model, you look at the, the Busher Dortmund model. They don't worry about winning. These tactically and technically 16 into, into the club. Now we talk about tactics because your techniques are there. And then coaches get well paid, very much revered, very much highly thought of. In the UK, I don't think it's the same. I think in the UK, sometimes it's all about we've got to win, we've got to win. And we get someone who's six foot 10 because he's under 15 and they win a game. But you've got to break down why, how's little Johnny that left back today? How's he done? And I think in Holland and, and Germany and France, and I think they do it so much more better. I really do. I know we've had recent success, but I think people don't go into academies in the UK because of, because of the lack of finance, because of the lack of, you know, the hours are what the hours are, but you've got to put the hours in. But I do believe youth team coaches over here should be more revered. I really do. The honesty about the standards that are set coming from playing to coaching, knowing it's not necessarily knowing what to coach, it's knowing how to go about doing it. And your advice getting into the game or intend to get into coaching is you've got to cut your teeth in it and find a good mentor who will, academies particularly, where rather than jumping straight in, you mentioned earlier, and I pick up 
That's a great point where you go, well, just think about the numbers, think about the organisation. We call it step, the step principle, where you think about the space provided and what's the task and then what equipment do you... All of that process takes a matter of time and being around somebody who will provide you with good support uh, and be honest around it rather than just jumping straight from playing and then going into into first team football or in around 23s football is is a, is a great thing to it's a great thing to consider without a shadow of a doubt mm-hmm. so look you you've mentioned coaches that have influenced you uh, you mentioned Kenny Jackett you mentioned some of the, the a couple of other who else have been the main the main influences in your in your coaching career to date well i I've always tried to take something from from everyone I've sort of played under, shall we say. And, you know, I've, I spoke about Alan Smith uh, before as my youth team manager, reserve team manager. And, uh, and first of all, I took a lot from Alan in terms of in terms of the character, how you are with young lads, because he was great with us. Steve Coppel, obviously, I took a little bit from Steve because with Steve, Steve was non-confrontational. Steve didn't like confrontation. He, he sorted things out in a methodical way, shall we say. He wasn't a rant and raver wasn't nothing like that and, and I thought that was really really good because sometimes I think we sometimes you deserve a bit of a uh, going over shall we say but he wouldn't do that he, he was fantastic you know I think Gordon Strachan probably one of the most influential because we went there you talk about Arsene Wenger coming in in 97, 98 whenever it was and the Arsenal boys talk about the sessions you know four minutes doing that going to that pitch blah blah well Gordon was doing that back, back then with us very good coach and he and he, what we had with his sessions was a real intensity. No one, no one slept off because if he did, he just said, "Right, he just said, well, we come back at four o'clock, do it at four o'clock." And I did that once with the twenty threes, and they couldn't believe it. That's something I got from Gordon. If you don't want to train, don't worry about it. We come back at four, and he always made it a time where you couldn't quite leave the training ground because by the time you got home, you had to come back. And it was there's a deal. There's a few hours we thought we had training ground, we've got nothing to do for about three hours. So. It was a real good way of, of, of doing things and um, he, he, he was great, Gordon, and I took so much off him in terms of, in terms of work ethic, in terms of diet, in terms of preparation, and I've taken that into the young lads today in terms of how you prepare for games and what this game should mean to you. And, and you know, Gordon's one of the first guys who said, don't, don't get to 35 and look in the mirror and think, you left some out there. You know, don't do that. Every time I trained and every time I played, you know, I, I tried to do it the best I possibly could. And I will say to the kids now, so he was, he, he was a real influence in terms of how I would, how I would see myself as a coach. I'm quite, quite intense. I'm quite vocal. I try to drive the session and sometimes maybe that's the wrong thing. Maybe the kids should be driving a session, not me at times. So I try to sometimes take a step back as well. I, I did get up the thought when, when Steve Koppel sometimes stepped back and thought, right, you drive the session because that brings things out in you. So in different ways, a mix of them two managers would have been would be perfect. But it's interesting. You just you just take so much, and and, and even even in my, even in my days at the Palace under twenty threes, I mean, I had a spell in in two years where I played under four managers. I played under, I worked under, played under, worked under Alan Pardew, um, Sam Allardyce, Frank De Boer, and Roy Hodgson, because everyone just kept getting sacked. <laughs> you know, I was just like the next one came through the door, you know. And and Alan played a four three three, Sam played a four four two. Frank de Boer played a 3-4-3 and Roy basically played a 4-5-1. So everyone played different. I'm trying to now, every time someone came in, it was a new challenge for me. Think quick on your feet. And I remember Frank de Boer came in 3-4-3. I remember being away on a funny assistant. I go, 3-4-3, right. So YouTube, YouTube, it's great now. 3-4-3, how to play 3-4-3, watch games of Ajax. And it just keeps you on your toes. You know, but I learned so much about how they how they coached how they behave under pressure as well, because I was in a lot of meetings, you know, and you go to a meeting on a Monday, because I was been in meetings on a Monday because I knew they wanted some of my players to train in and they'd lost the game. And you could just see, you can see pressure. I mean, people say you feel pressure. I think sometimes you can see it, you know, and see pressure, you're like, wow, how are you going to cope with this one? And how they cope with different scenarios. So I think it's always interesting when you're a coach because I think you can take you can take little bits from every single person you 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 interact with you know good or bad whichever way whichever way you want to do it but for me because I've just been working just below the managers I've got a good chance to see how they work and their characteristics and their traits and and how they do they do cope with uh, the pressure that is the Premier League. Richie talk about pressure and 
dealing with certain situations, but for you personally as a coach, even though you've not, you weren't, when you were at Palace, you weren't with the first team, um, you're still working with top players. Yeah. For you, does uncertainty ever creep into your psyche on how and what you're doing to develop the players that you're working with? It does. It does. And, and it, that was a real interesting question when I, when I heard that, actually. I, that's why I, I took a bit of thought over that. And the uncertainty, David, only arises from, I, I think the man management side of the game, I, I enjoy. I, I really, really enjoy it. You know, if we have players come down, Ben Takeover come down or something like that, you treat them like human, just say, look, Chris, I know you're down here because you just got injured. You do what you've got to do. And the man management, that side of it, I've always been fine with that. The uncertainty comes, the uncertainty comes, and I've always been like that, would be within the session in terms of is the session right? And I know it sounds stupid, but at times I put a session on and in my head I'm sitting there thinking, this isn't the right session, the, the wrong session, the, the pitch is wrong and this isn't quite working. But then you've got to try and blag it just sort of say, well, we're doing this because knowing for where you come off the pitch thinking, oh God, that was a terrible, terrible day. But we've got through it. But my only, my only uncertainty comes is it's not with the management of the players. It's it's just making sure the sessions are the right sessions for what they need that day. Um, because I do take a lot of thought thought over that. A lot of thought driving home the previous day. Um, I'll get home at night. I'll, I'll write sessions down. So I'll go in next morning. I used to have a big, big whiteboard behind my desk. It's something I always done. And I've, I've got OCD, and I'm not the first to say that. I, I would literally write the session on the board of a ruler. Every line would be straight, 90 degree angle. And you go from here to here to here to here. So that's something I took off from Gordon's track, and I had always had four elements of the session. But I always wanted, my uncertainty always came was, is that the right size? And if, if the first time I'm going to take three players off me, how can I quickly adapt that session to something else? That's where my uncertainty came. Whereas I've seen... The two coaches I, I, I talked about, Jack Meeshaw is now at Chelsea and Dave Redditon is now still at Palace. I watched them too because they've been coaching for 20 years, whereas I didn't have their coaching career because I was a player. And three players go, for, if, if, for instance, we're doing a session, all of a sudden, telephone goes, Roy Hodgson wants five players. I'd be like, oh my God, I don't believe we set some up. And then all of a sudden, like, a little bit of cold sweat will come and think, what are we going to do? And then Dave Redditon bang straight away, we just go, don't worry, we'll change it to that, that, that. And I thought, I would love that. I would love how we've done that. And I've got, I've got so much better at it now, composed in my thinking, shall we say, about, about if things go wrong, don't think, right, rush around 100 miles now, just take a step back. Lads, we've started in 10 minutes' time, just want to rearrange things. I'm a bit bit more composed now. But the man management side, I, I really enjoy. I really enjoy that get-to-know, get-to-know players. But my, my, my uncertainty in my psyche comes with uh, just, just, just to make sure the session's right, for everything to go smoothly. I don't think you're on your own with that either. <laughs> don't think you're on your own. Oh yeah, I, it's I can relate to that. Yeah. I, honestly, I mean, you, you say that, and I can't tell you how much I feel that. Yeah. Um, the man management, I've, there's always work to do. You can always get better with how you deal with yeah. people. But I think that's a. It's something that. For me, I, I feel that that could be it's a strong point, but then it's the actual delivery of the session or is it right in that moment? And there have been times where I've, I've done the exact same thing where you say, we're doing this because... And yeah. then after we're just scratching your head thinking, ah, car crash, <laughs> absolute car crash. What have I... What have I... And, and I, 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 I feel I come off sometimes and I go, I've actually let them down. They've probably gone away thinking it was great and I... I feel that I've probably let them down because I haven't delivered what I should have done. And, and maybe that's overanalyzing, but I know in, in the role, you, you're actually impacting people's lives yeah. and you want to make the most of every session or every interaction to, to give them the best value possible. So I, I, I could relate I, to it like you wouldn't believe. Absolutely. And I do think it's right that you do reflect. I mean, as a coach, it, it just consumes you. I've got three doors at home and I, and half the time I've just come home like a zombie because I'm driving home and thinking, how did that session go? And I'm already thinking about the next session. Yeah. It's, it's incredible how much it, it grips you in, in, in terms of it. I remember, I remember doing a session once, <laughs> Sammy Lee phoned me up like before and said, oh, uh, Kevin Keane's got to go to a funeral. Can you come and help me? I think Sam Allardyce was off. Sam is in Dubai, I think. So I went, you yeah, no problem, Sammy. So I knew what's going to happen. I knew because sometimes, sometimes you, 
I mean, Lenny Lawrence, I remember being of course, and Lenny Lawrence said, said to us all as a group, you'll find, you'll find your vocation as a coach. You'll either be in development, you'll either be an assistant manager, you'll either be a manager. And I'm sitting there thinking, yeah, I think you could do all three of them. Nope. And I, I understand now what he means, because I actually love development. I love being in development, bringing young kids through, and I've really, really enjoyed that. Um, when I'm being the first team sometimes, you don't get to coach so much as much you should do, but you don't. You're almost just ticking them over. I remember that day, that day uh, Sammy Lee had one, and we had a, a 10v10, and Andros Townsend walked off, he had a little injury. And I just said to Sammy, I said, look, Sammy, just keep the session going. I'm going to go with 23s and I'll get a left winger. So I brought a left winger over. By the time I come back, Sammy just rearranged the whole session. It was just, it was a car crash. And it was almost like, there was like, like 15 on one team, seven on another. And I've come back, oh, what's, what's gone on? And then all of a sudden, Sammy just turned around and he said, right, you ref this. And I, I'm looking at it, I'm thinking, what have you done? <laughs> and then, as the session's going on, and I, I know it, I know these sides are all, and Jason Punchin is hammering me. Johan Kabai is hammering me. And I've got all these things, Scotty, Danny's ripping into me. And I'm thinking, oh my God, you know, I just, I was, I just wanted to get off the training pitch um, because of what happened. So, Sometimes it's not easy. It's great when you when you walk off though, and you sit in a canteen, and Jason Punching comes up, and we all laugh about it and this and that because the sides were wrong and this and that. But more often than not, more often than not, players I think players will appreciate the time and effort that goes into it as they get older. But I think as as they're as they're younger, it's almost like what are you doing for me. But as they get older and they want to go into that side of it, it's almost like right, I really appreciate the time and effort that you've done and. And the same with the same with young lads. I mean, I do double sessions most days because because Gordon Strachan once said to me, "You don't you don't learn anything by going home watching neighbours." That was his quote. So I, I at Palace, I used to do I used to do a session at two o'clock, and it was also a technical session, whether it's forwards finishing. It was only forty five minutes. That's all it was for. Four backs, cut backs, whatever it was. But I always go out most days at two, and the players would moan. And I said to, I said, lads, honestly, don't worry about it. If you want to come out, I, I will never hold it against you. If you don't want to come out. I'm not the most of the time either. And so a few came out and they saw the sessions, like the right back was cutting back, one touch finishes, the lads, you could hear the noise. And one by one, they all started coming out. The next, the next week, they all, by, by day by day, they all started coming out. And it, they, they start to grasp the, the attention that you're giving them. You know, you're not just doing it for your sake, you're doing it for the kids. And then they start to understand it, think, oh, okay, yeah, okay, I'll, have, I'll have a bit of this. But it's how can you find that way to get into their minds, to, to make them work. It's, 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 that's, that's the interesting side of it. I like that side of it. I think the, the thing about it, Rich, is that players are interesting. They're not bothered what you've done. No. It might, if you play lots of games, it'll get you the respect early doors. They're interested that you care for them. Yeah. They're interested also that they can learn from you. And the last thing that they, and there are more, but the last thing I'm, the three things really, they want to know they can learn. They want to know that you care for them and they want to know that they can trust you. And if you're consistent with that, the trust takes a matter of time. The learning can take a short period of time. Uh, but the caring aspect comes through the generosity of what you provide to them. You're giving them, providing them with some gold nugget of information that can help them improve if they got the right mentality. But how have you evolved? How has that, how has that coaching process for you evolved over the period of time that you have been coaching? Um, I, think it's, I, think, I think you have to evolve, okay? I think, I think you have to. And you may sit there and, you know, I, I play, like I said, nearly 700 games, but I'm still learning about coaching. I've been coaching for 10 years. I'm still learning about different sides of it. And, you know, as, as the years go on, the tactics evolve. You have to go. I mean, everyone now because what Pep Guardiola has done. Everyone now is doing. Everyone now is doing that. Thinking we have to go that way. But but even it's not so much the tactical stuff, anything like that. For me, what's evolved most is the human being. Is is the player. The player for me is really is really changed. And it's it's now how you speak to young players. Now it's now how you have to interact with them at times. It's, and not just young players, but senior players because. You know, they get offended. I mean, I, I, I heard a story the other day, I won't tell you what club it was, where an assistant manager said to a player, you've got to do more. A bit aggressive, maybe, I don't know, but you've got to do more. And, and, the, and the player was such a high-profile player, just turned around and basically just said, well, you've lost me now. And I'm like, that's a first-team game. Oh, my God, and they still want pampering. You know, and, and I think, 
I think that's the most difficult side now of the game is is the management of the players now and how that side of it's evolved. Even like even like young lads, you know, young lads they've all got agents now. They've got parents now. There's pressure on kids to now succeed because of the the finances that are in football now. You know, you you get agents phoning people. Why's my boy not playing? Well, your boy's not playing. She's been late every day of the week. That's why. But they don't see that. They don't see that. They don't. They just they just see. Well, if you want to go and do it, taking somebody else to do it. I've always been, well, go on in, don't worry about it. But now, but now clubs are so precious that they want to keep boys because they're scared of compensation. And there's so much now to think about it. Uh, I've tried to evolve. I've tried to evolve with, with the player. And I think for myself, having, I've got three daughters and I've had to evolve with them because I know how it is. My, my daughters are at home now. They're on their phones all the time or a tablet or whatever it is. So that's their life. Their life's Instagram and whatever it is they do now. As much as I say, oh, get off that phone, they don't. They don't. They can't. And the, the players are the same. I'll finish an under-23s game, debrief them, blah, blah, blah. I'll, I'll leave the change room and literally 15 seconds later, I'll come back and change room. Oh, I forgot to tell them what time we're in tomorrow. I'll go into a time, every single player's on the phone. Every single player's on the phone. Now, whether I like it or not, that is the modern, that is the modern world. And whether we do like it or not, we have to adapt. We have to adapt. They can't adapt to us. We have to adapt. It has it, it has moved on. I think if you don't adapt, or you haven't got that that skill set of managing people, I think you'll you'll soon lose people now, and I think you'll lose players. And I look at a, I look at a modern day manager now. I mean, one of the best I've seen is Ancelotti. When I went to see Carlo Ancelotti work at Chelsea, how we how we adapted to the first team, you know, how we how we worked for the first team, how we them little conversations when you're going from one session to another session, them little conversations just to have a chat about how's the wife, how's the kids, how's it, how's that? And, you know, and I, and I, and I think you, that's, for me, being the most difficult side of it is don't get too stuck in your ways of how it used to be because them days are, but the modern day player now, they, they don't relate to them days. They've got no idea what you're talking about, you know? God bless, I mean, we used to have, we used to have a, a bar in the players' lounge and have a beer after a game. <laughs> Nowadays, I mean, you just you straight through smoothies, warm down, everything. I, I, I have to say, if I think it's gone too far the other way now with the sports science side of it, I think now we're basically pampering to needs. Now, I think we are. I mean, you telling me a player can't play two games in a week? I, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm just, I just totally disagree. You know, but I think we've gone too far. But I also think there has to be a balance, and I think that's just, that's just. Um, I think sometimes you've got to look at the situation at times, take a step back, assess the situation, then deliver. I think sometimes when you used to go in straight away, blah, 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 I think now you've just got to count to 10. I think, right, it may be wrong, but what's the best thing to diffuse a situation, so we say, to get the best out of that person? For the modern manager now and the modern, modern day coach now, I think it's, it's quite difficult. Rich, final question for you. What does the future look like for you? What's in the, what's in the pipeline? Oh gosh! Well, in, in football, you can't really <laughs> you can't really predict a future because football is what football is. Um, but yeah, I, I, I want to I want to stay in football. I mean, I've been over to I've been over to America. I've done some work over there in um, in Orlando uh, recently before obviously COVID popped its really ugly head, shall we say? I really enjoyed that. So there's an opportunity to go and work there sort of full time. Um, I know it sounds silly, but to commute back and forth, it's, it's not a bad flight. East Coast, seven and a half hours, get back. And I've always been used to sort of travelling as well. I'm not lived in Coventry, I lived in Surrey. You know, I worked in Coventry for 10 years, back and forth. So my wife and children were sort of used to that. So that job's, that job's there. Um, if if once the COVID thing starts, start getting the grips with it, probably about December, January time, I think. But, but at the moment, I don't think the future... Um, you can't really look past too much. I mean, I've been offered a, been offered a role over here in the UK, so I'm waiting, waiting to see how that goes. But but with, but with football, I just think I don't know. It's 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 a, it's a strange, strange industry. It's uh, it's I've always said it's a, it's a game that I love, but sometimes I don't like because there's some weird things going on in football. And uh, but yeah, I want to I want to stay in football. I, I do, and um, I do some bits and bobs. I've got a business where we wear self football kits and equipment and little bits I'm getting involved with away from football with an agency and things like that but um, yeah it's, it's, it's one of the ones you just can't plan too far ahead because football disappoints you at some stage but then you get back on you get back on the horse you go again you know I, and I've always said that about life 
uh, especially about football, I've said to kids, your, your career will not go like that. It will never, no one's career goes like regular football without football. It will go there, 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 you're there, there, you, you might get divorced, you might lose your job, you might blah, blah, blah. I said, but it's when you're down there, it's how you react. It's how you get back from adversity is, is the real key issue because we all survive. When, when things are great, everything's great. Um, but it's when you just take a little dip, right? How are you going to cope? So I've, I've tried to be never too, never too high, never too low. Just being on even keel, um, always been quite balanced. Certainly the last the last ten years since I since I started coaching, because I know how volatile that industry of coaching is and managing is. I've just taken a, a balanced view of it now, and never too high, never too low. Richard, I look at the clock and I'm going, oh blimey, it, it's. We're on an hour here now, and the time's flown. Listen, thank you very much, by the way, for creating time. I speak on behalf of David and myself here. It's been extremely insightful. And uh, your experiences of playing, sharing your time when you played uh, the game and getting into coaching, and sharing, just being honest and... It'd been communicated to me by a mutual friend of ours uh, that had said exactly the same. You'll say as it is, and mm-hmm. for that, <clears throat> and for that, and that alone, we we really appreciate it. So no, thanks very very, very much. Thank you both. Thanks for tuning into the Golders podcast today. If you enjoyed this episode and you haven't already subscribed, please do so. Your continued support is highly appreciated and it means so much to us knowing that the content that's being produced is providing value in people's lives. If you would like to know more or get more information from us, you can follow us on Twitter at Gold Dust Podcast, and also you can visit our website at thegolddustcoach.com. Thank you, everybody.